Good morning, Living Truth. I'm happy to be here today and excited y'all are here. Turn with me, if you could please, to Luke chapter 1, verse 46. We're going to be in our Bibles today, Luke 1, verse 46. And while you're turning there, we're going to do a little bit of a Pictionary up on the big screen here. I'm going to show you some old school superhero animals. We're going to get an inspiration to name a new superhero animal. If you look here, some of you might recognize this guy. Who's this? Underdog. Underdog. Right. If you shout it out, know it. Who is this dynamic duo? Akimbo. Yes, they are superheroes. They went up against the Boris and Natasha. So they count. And this guy. Right, Mighty Mouse. Not Mickey Mouse, it's Mighty Mouse. There's a whole generation here who actually doesn't know who these are, and so this next one is for them. Who is this superhero? Yeah, the younger voice is Perry the Platypus, and the older generation's like, who? Is a platypus? It's a superhero animal? Yes, in fact, there is. And now we switch gears to introduce you to this young lady. Who's that? Right, she's got an umbrella, she floats, she's British, it's Mary Poppins. Some of you, a younger generation, might recognize her this way because she had a redo. <laughs> but I'm old school. I like her like this. She'll always be like that to me, right, in my heart. But now, if you join Miss Poppins to this new superhero feline, you get to give him a name. Anybody know his name? It becomes Mary's Magnificat. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Oh, man, you got to love a good dad joke. So we take this time, as Pastor Michael said in the introduction, this passage is, in fact, called Mary's Magnificat. And we're going to look at that today and even explain to you just a little bit why it's called the Magnificat. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you this morning excited to hear from you and from your word because your word is living and active. Your word can do a work in our hearts where it divides soul and spirit joint and marrow, and judge thoughts and intents in our heart. And so we just give our hearts to you now, that it would just be good soil, Lord, that you would plant your seed there and it would bear much fruit. And so this time is yours, Lord. Would your Holy Spirit lead us and guide us, we pray now. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of your Bibles, in fact, are going to look like this. You have a header above verse 46, and it'll say, Mary's Magnificat. I took a couple of pictures of my kids' Bibles, and theirs didn't say that. It said, Song of Mary. One of theirs actually said, Mary's Song. A couple of the online versions I saw said, Song of Mary. Here's another one. It doesn't matter which version of the Bible you're in. You can be in the NASB, which is the New American Standard Bible version. I'll be reading that today. You can be in the New King or the NIV or the ESV. It doesn't matter. Some of you are going to say, again, the Magnificat, Mary's Song of Praise, Song of Mary, Mary's song, it's all the same passage, and we're going to be starting in verse 46 today. And so, again, that's why it's called the Magnificat. We're going to look at that in just a second, though. The Magnificat's an odd name. Where do we get that from? Well, we get that from verse 46 itself. Verse 46 says, and Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord. Some of your Bibles will see it actually a little bit differently. If you have the ESV, it'll say, my soul exalts magnifies the Lord. If you're in the NIV, it'll say, my soul glorifies the Lord. And New King James is going to say, my soul magnifies the Lord. And can't leave out King James, my soul doth magnify the Lord. For some reason, you have to drop it down an octave to always read the, New King, the King James Version. But it's that word right there that exalts. 
magnifies, glorifies. That's the word that this song was named after. That magnificat is just the Latin word for magnify. So back when Latin was a thing, before it was actually a dead language, it was a living language, and the title has just stuck around for this many years, okay? But that word magnify simply means to exalt, to make larger, or to esteem greatly. And so when Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord, what exactly does she mean? To magnify the Lord with your soul simply means for our innermost being, the depths, the fullness of our hearts to exalt the Lord and give the Lord the highest praise. And so, of course, the song, and we'll be going line by line through. If you don't have your Bible with you, that's okay. But again, I'll have the New American Standard Bible version up here. I'll be going, it's almost lyric by lyric because it's a song, but line by line through it. We're going to be in verse 46, but before we start there, I want you to put like a mental thumb there. We're actually going to look at why she's singing a song. You can't just jump into the fact that Mary's singing a song and not understand why. And so I want to look with you at the context first of why she's singing this song. And so we're actually going to be starting here in verse 5 when we read. So again, put your thumb there. We flip back a page for most of us, and we'll start in verse 5 of the same chapter, Luke chapter 1. And again, it's right up here behind me. If you don't like to do that translation thing where the guy up there is reading and your version is a little different, you can read along up here and see with me. Verse 5 in Luke 1 says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife and the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But... They had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of the division, according to the customs of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. Verse 11. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb." And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. Verse 17 goes on. It says, It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zacharias said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I'm an old man and my wife. She's advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I'm Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. And very briefly, we'll look at this verse 18. You look at this Zechariah. Here's the proof of his unbelief. He asked the angel, how will I know this for certain? 
You see, Zacharias is asking for a sign. I understand there's an angel standing before me, and I understand your word to me is a promise I'm going to have a child, but could you give me a little more to go on? I'm going to need another sign, a miracle, a wonder to back up what it is you're saying. And Gabriel's like, dude, I'm the angel who stands before God in the holy temple. Like, I came down personally to give you this message, and you don't believe. You're going to go mute, he says. And we understand that he's got a simple obstacle. He says, I'm an old guy. I'm well past childbearing years. And he says delicately, as Pastor Michael said last, my wife's advanced in years. (laughs) If nothing else, remember these simple four points from that passage so we can move on. One, Zacharias is old. That's his obstacle. He's told he's going to have a child. Simply put, he just doesn't believe. And then the outcome is he just goes mute for nine months. If you got that, we're going to pick it up now in verse 26 and read along. Again, our goal is to get to 46 where the Magnificat starts. In verse 26 of Luke 1, it says, and again, this is the sixth month. So this is six months later. Elizabeth had her child. She is in her sixth month. She's ending her second trimester. And now the angel gives a a message to Mary. It says, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Verse 33, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And some people look here at this verse 34 section, they say, man, it sounds like Mary perhaps had some objections as well. Understand when Mary asked the question, how can this be? I think some of our versions actually say it a different way. It says, how will this be in the NIV and the ESV? And that's a better way to put what she's actually saying. She's asking, Lord, I understand what you're saying. I'm going to have a child. But how do you intend to do this? How, Lord, will this come about to pass? Because she says, I've known not a man. I'm a virgin. So tell me, Lord, your plan to accomplish this. And we know by the outcome that she absolutely believes what the Lord is saying. But she's saying, Lord, just tell me how you want to do it. And again, she has that obstacle. And it's a pretty realistic obstacle because she's saying, you're saying I'm going to have a son, but I've never known a man. Like, you tell me how you wanted this to play out. And again, a simple recap. Mary is young. She's told she'd have a child. She believes. 
And then we know that in verse 46, her soul is going to magnify the Lord. But let's talk just for a second as we lead into this song about the obstacles that, of, that are in front of faith. Because faith always has obstacles. And what I mean by this is we're going to compare and contrast Zacharias and Mary very briefly. Zacharias on this side and Mary, they both got the same message. They were both told, again, these two are contemporaries. That is, they live in the same time, in the same regions. They, in fact, got the same message from the same angel. You're going to have a child. They both had their own obstacles. Zacharias' obstacle was he said, I'm just pretty old. Mary, we know, says, I'm a virgin. And yet, given the same message, and having the same obstacles, they had vastly different responses. Zacharias chose, despite all that, not to believe. And Mary, as we know, chose to believe. And that led to two totally different outcomes. Zacharias goes mute for nine months. Totally mute, can't talk. Whereas Mary says, oh, this is my chance, my voice. I will lift up with all that I am in my innermost being just to magnify the Lord. She's doing exactly what it said in Psalm 96, verse 1. Psalm 96, 1 proclaims to sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. And so that's the context. Mary grabs hold of the promise of God and she says, I believe. And then she says as she starts her song, my soul, my soul magnifies the Lord. She goes on then to verse 47, and she says, My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. I take a moment to say this. I say it delicately and lovingly. You should understand that Mary was a sinner, just like you and me. And Mary had absolute need for a Savior, just like you and me. She was not perfect, as some proclaimed to be, She, as prophesied by Isaiah 64, 6, a prophet before her time, said, for all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us, Mary, me, you, wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And so certainly Mary understands that she needs a savior. And she goes on in verse 48, for he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. I remember the first time I read that, I thought, of course Mary is blessed. Her kid is perfect. Like, how simple of a life would it be if your kid never talked back, they never lied, they never stayed out past curfew, so you wondered the worst thoughts. I was like, man, never got a parent, a teacher send a note home for a parent-teacher conference. Like, this kid was just pure bliss. So, of course, oh, I would say any parent that has that is truly, truly blessed. 
But that's not really why she's blessed. In fact, we know that she went on after she married Joseph, she had some more kids. She, we know that after that, she had you know, a middle child to deal with and a youngest child and all kinds of children to deal with. So that pure blissfulness of the perfect child was relatively short-lived. But her blessedness does not come from the fact that she's the mother of Jesus. Her blessedness, her being blessed comes from the fact that she presents herself to the Lord as humble bond slave. What's that mean? It means she chose to be the Lord's servant. She said, all of who I am exists to serve the Lord. It's not my will, she said, but your will be done. Some of the versions will say the handmaiden of the Lord or the maidservant of the Lord. And that means the same thing. It's kind of a flowery way to put it, but straight up, it's a bond slave. It's a slave by choice. So she has chosen to say, you are the Lord and I serve you. And so as First Peter took this principle from the Old Testament, but he proclaimed it again, First Peter 5 says, and be clothed with humility for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. This is Mary's time. Mary, by her humility and wantingness just to serve the Lord and lower herself, is now being exalted by the Lord Verse 49 reads, for the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. And I do wonder if perhaps in a crowd of this size that there's someone sitting there and says, well, that's good for you, Mary. You can recall the mighty one doing great things for you, but I can't. What has the Lord ever done for me? I'm here to tell you what he's done for you. He's done a whole lot. First, you should understand the Lord made you. The Lord, oh my goodness, he sustains you with your every breath. The Bible says even before you were in the womb, he knew you. Understand this, what the Lord's done for you, that he brought his only begotten son who was there in heaven, pristine and perfect, to come down and humble himself to be born in a manger, a filthy stinky, dirty barn for you. That his son lived a perfect life and fulfilled a law that you and I, frankly, break every single day. And then he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins and my sins. He had his son for you lay in a tomb three days. And on that third day, raised him up to conquer sin and the grave and death to give you life. That by simply putting your faith in that, you could have eternal life. That's what he's done for you. And he continues on. The Bible says that he now makes intercession for us with the Father. He gave us his spirit to be with us, to comfort us, that he would never leave us nor forsake us. He says that he went and prepared a place for us in heaven where you get to spend eternity with the Father who loves you. Surely he has done great things for you. And holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty is his name. Amen? I think you get some insight into the real person of Mary when she says in verse 50, and mercy is upon generation 
after generation toward those who fear him. I'm going to key in on this word, mercy. I find it very interesting that Mary loves the mercy of the Lord. Because there's a difference between mercy and grace. And I want to take a time to just time out and clarify these words, because if you've just come in off the street and you didn't know any of this Bible stuff, and it's kind of a Christianese word, this mercy, the grace of God. And so here's just a minute to help describe those two for you so we can compare and contrast them, understand the difference. I'll start with God's grace. I love God's grace. I named my daughter Grace. It's a great thing. I'm going to give you first the dictionary definition for you before I break it down into layman's terms. But when it comes to the grace of God, understand grace is the unmerited or unearned favor of God. Layman's word to put it the way I say it, grace is just getting something that you don't deserve. What's that look like? It looks like me picking up my kids from school one day and saying, hey, kids, hop in. We're going to get some ice cream. And they say, what for, Dad? Did a grade get posted? Did it do something well? What, what went on? And I say, no. No reason whatsoever. Just because I love you. Let's go get some ice cream. Oh, it's a picture of grace. My kids love grace. <laughs> Spiritually, here's what it looks like to have God's grace upon you. Grace is getting to have a relationship with God the Father as your heavenly Father. It's getting to cry out to the creator of the universe, Abba, Father. Grace is getting to be clothed in his righteousness. It's taking off those filthy rags that Isaiah declared are over us because of our sin and getting to put on his righteousness. You didn't deserve it. You never earned it, but he gives it to you anyway. Salvation, simply God's grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, so you don't get to brag about it. It's a free gift. And I love this, just heaven. Again, that eternity forever. It's a free gift, God says. It's all yours. Contrast that to mercy, what Mary's focusing on. Dictionary definition, again, a little wordy. Mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone when it's within one's power to punish. Eh, what's that saying? It means mercy is not getting the punishment you deserve. Grace, again, is getting something you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting something that you, in fact, do deserve. Do you see the difference? What's it look like in my house? Mercy is... My kids do something that needs to get them disciplined, and they're supposed to get a couple pow-pows on the, on the bottoms. <laughs> and they get ready, and the tears start to come down their eyes as they're right up next to me. And I turn and look at them, and I say, hey, look, today, today I'm not going to get disciplined you. Today you're not going to get any spankings whatsoever. And they say, what? And the tears begin. Do you mean I'm going to lose my electronics? And I said, no, doesn't mean that either. I'm just going to have mercy on you. The kids just beam. And I ask them a simple question. I said, do you like mercy? Yeah, we love mercy. Mercy's good. I said, great, get up. Sin no more. Get out of here. <laughs> What's it look like spiritually to have a couple examples of mercy? Mercy is just not getting the consequences for your sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. 
We don't get that under mercy. The Bible says there's no condemnation. That's mercy. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You don't have to walk around with the sin and guilt and shame and that cloud like pig pen over your head every day. There's no condemnation. How about an example of mercy not being under the wrath of God? The Bible says God's wrath is coming. It will be poured out upon an unbelieving world. And God says by faith, you guys who put your faith in Jesus, you're not going to be here. It's quite simple. It's his mercy that says you're not going to be there. Couldn't be more blunt than this. Not going to hell. That's God's mercy. And my favorite thing is that Mary understands that mercy for her is upon generation after generation. Because she understands mercy's been in her family for a very long time. If you don't know, Mary is the great, 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 I think it's 40 times or so, great granddaughter of King David. Another way to say it is King David is Mary's great, great, 40 times over great grandpa of Mary. And David knows and loves God's mercy. It was just after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and he had made plans and in fact executed those plans to kill her husband Uriah that he was lounging about like it was no big deal. It was the, Nathan, it was the prophet Nathan who walked up to David and said, David, I've got a story to tell you. And David said, yeah, I love stories. Let's go. What do you got? Nathan said, well, there was a rich man and he had a whole bunch of sheep. He had land and sheep beyond measure. He was totally well off. And then there was a poor man who was his neighbor. And this man had just one little ewe lamb. But this poor man, he loved that little sheep. He raised that sheep like it was his own son or daughter. Absolutely cared for that sheep. Well, one day, Nathan said, a traveler came to visit the rich man. And David, wanting to prepare a feast for the traveler, looked out over his flocks of sheep and said, mm, nah, I don't want to use one of mine. He looked over the fence and saw his neighbor and said, yeah, I'm going to take that guy's sheep. And so he took the poor man's sheep, slaughtered it, made a feast, and laid it out before the traveler. When David heard this story, he was filled with righteous anger, he was indignant, and he said, as the Lord lives, that man should surely die. Nathan, David, you're that man. David was cut. David's sin had just hit him smack in the face for the first time. And it was in that moment when he wrote this psalm. And how do I know he wrote this psalm? Because the psalm says, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. But verse one goes on to read where David, with all seriousness, says, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. 
For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done evil in your sight. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. He's saying, Lord, I've been a sinner my entire life. Please have mercy on me, a sinner. And so Mary has seen the hand of God work mercifully from generation after generation in her family line. She goes on in verse 51 and 52 to say, the Lord has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. There's a lot of Old Testament illustrations that come to mind when I think about the Lord scattering proud and bringing down rulers from their thrones. The one that always comes to mind is uh, the, the Babylonian king Belshazzar. Belshazzar is the son of King Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar thought it would be a really cool idea to go take all the vessels of the Lord from the temple, all the golden vessels, and take them and have a dinner party with them at his place. He thought, I'm gonna take these holy items and just come on back and invite some friends and family and say, hey guys, come over. And he was eating and drinking and having a good time, mocking the Lord, praising the God, in fact, of gold and silver and bronze. When the party concluded, he went back and retired to his room And the Bible says there was a hand, just a hand that put some writing on the wall. It said, Belshazzar, you've been weighed and found wanting, and I'm going to take this kingdom from you. It's going to go to the Medes and the Persians. And the Bible goes on to say the next verse that he died that night. You see, the Lord is sovereign. The Lord is in control. The proud, the arrogant, he can scatter him and he can bring rulers down. And as this verse ends, he can exalt those who are humble, like Mary, when it's her time. I think also there's a very interesting New Testament illustration that always makes me, it's sad when someone dies, but it does make me chuckle just a little bit in the way in which it happens. In Acts 12, you should understand that this is Herod Agrippa. This is the grandson of Herod the Great. It says in Acts 12, again, a great picture of just a ruler being brought down by the Lord. It says, so on a set day, Herod Agrippa, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration or a speech to the people of Tyre and Sidon. And the people kept shouting, it's the voice of a God and not of a man. Because they were fluffing him up and they were like, don't take away our food. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died but the word of God grew and multiplied. What a perfect picture of just the Lord being powerful and on the throne and saying, if you want to lift up and just be against me and you want to get the voice of a God, not a man, Herod was like, yeah, I am a God. And God's like, no, you're not. (laughs) And he was eaten by worms and he died. And again, Just as much as he can bring down those rulers from their thrones, he can exalt those who are humble. A reminder that he resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Verse 53 goes on to say that he has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. 
I'm mindful as we as a church have been going through Exodus for the past few months, um, God provided for them. They were hungry. They came out of Egypt with nothing. And they kept complaining to Moses, we're hungry, we're hungry. I'm hangry, they were saying. And he's like, I will feed you. I'm going to put food out for you every day and twice on the sixth day so you can lounge about and do nothing on the seventh day. I will completely take care of you. We know in about 30 years, in fact, Jesus is going to come on scene and he's going to record being, he'll feed 5,000, 4,000, plus the women and children. God loves to feed the hungry. And just as he does that, the Bible says that he will send away the rich empty-handed. Those who have none will be given, and those who have, who have will be taken away. This reminds me, there's that parable of the story, really it's not a parable, of the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler comes up to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Remember, Jesus told him, he says, well, it's simple, man. You just got to keep the commandments. You got to not commit a murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie. You got that. And the rich young ruler was all stoked. He's like, yeah, I got that. I've been doing that since I was a kid. That sounds easy. And then he just asked, is there anything else I need to do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus, perceiving what was really in his heart, said, yeah, in fact, just one last thing. Go sell all that you have and come follow me. It was at those words the rich young ruler just dropped his head and just walked away because the Bible said he had many possessions. That is, he had many things that he thought were more important than the kingdom of God, that he loved the things of the world more than the things of Jesus. And the Bible made it really clear that you don't get to buy your way into heaven, that it's not a game of whoever has the most toys at the end wins. The Bible makes it really clear that your money's not going to get you in, but faith in Jesus alone is what gets you in. And I really like verse 54 and 55. Mary goes on to say, the Lord has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. You should know what's happening here. It's in this moment when Gabriel comes to her and says, you're going to have a child. It's going to be the son of God. He's going to be in your womb by the Holy Spirit. It's in that moment that Mary begins to do the flipping of the, the scrolls in her head. And she just, no doubt, her eyes lit up, her heart rejoiced, and she knew that this was the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham. That promise to God, from God to Abraham, we call it the Abrahamic covenant. If you're not familiar with it, I put it up behind me. It's listed in Genesis 12 and over and over again to the, through the Bible. But that promise was quite simple. The Lord told Abram, go forth from your country, from your relatives and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. That's why it's called the promised land. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
It's that last part there, that in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That was the promise of the Messiah. That was the promise that one day, Abraham, from your line, from your seed, will come one who will be a blessing to the entire world. That promise was given to Abraham, passed down to his son Isaac, given to Jacob. It was given again differently to David. David, as he was sitting there as king, He's the second king. He had watched the first king, Saul, come and go. David knew, in fact, he was going to come and go, and Solomon would come and go, and these kings would just be one after another. But God gave David a very specific promise. He told David, there will be one day one who will come from your line who will sit on the throne forever. And so Mary, in that moment when she's proclaimed and the angel says, this baby is going to be the child of God, she thinks, wow, all the things promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to David, fulfilled in my womb, she said. You know, it's this time at Christmas, they, they play that song that we all hear on the radio. It's a song my wife said, whatever you do, don't sing it. Just say it, they'll know what it is. It's that song, Mary, Did You Know? Married, I'm not singing it. <laughs> But the lyrics ask, Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? I don't know that Mary knew that at this point. Mary, did you know that one day your baby boy would calm the storm with his hand? I don't know that she knew that. But it goes on, Mary, did you know that one day the child you delivered would one day deliver you. Absolutely, she knew that. It goes on, I think the final verse is, Mary, did you know the child you're holding is the great I am? Yes, she knew. May you, as you go through that song, do, no, she didn't know. Yeah, she knew that one. Yeah, she knew that one. She knew. She knew she fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant. She knew her baby was the great I am. And so, this is Mary's song. This is the song of Mary, Mary's Magnificat. I ask you as we close and the worship team comes on up, what's your song? Has the Lord put a new song on your heart? Remember, it's more than just us about to go and sing a song. It's about what led up to this song. It's Mary getting the promise from God and saying, yes, I believe, Lord. Because the Bible says very clearly that all the promises in God, in him are yes and in him, amen, from the glory of God through us. And there are a lot of promises in God's word. And I wonder if you know them. I wonder if you're a student, are you a student of God's word that you know these promises? Because life is going to throw at you all these obstacles, the anxieties, the worries, the fears, the doubts, the things of this world. And sometimes God gives promises directly to individuals. He did it to Mary. He did it to Zacharias. He'll do it in the next chapter to Simeon. He told Simeon, you are not going to die until you see the Lord's Messiah. And so, yes, God absolutely can put something just upon your heart. Do you believe it? More often than not, you should know God makes promises through his word. 
The Bible says really clearly that he, here's a couple examples, that he is for you and not against you. The Bible says very clearly that all things are working together for your good because you love him. Do you believe that? Or do you look at the circumstances and the things of this world and just say, I don't know. Do you want to live a life? I think back to the the wilderness wandering for 40 years. The 12 spies went in. Two said, let's go, saddle up, boys. We're going in. And 10 said, no, let's not. Pump the brakes, time out. And so because they believed the 10 instead of the two, they wandered for 40 years of wilderness. Do you want to wander for 40 years in the wilderness or do you want to be mute for nine months? Do you want to be mute in the office when it comes an opportunity to share the gospel? Or do you want to, by by faith, say, you know what? God's word never returns void. I'm going to engage in this conversation and just release the word of God that it will do the work that it promises to do because God in his word says that none he desires should perish but that all would have everlasting life. And so I simply ask you, Are you holding to the promises of God? Because if you are, it's so easy to have your soul magnify the Lord because you're putting your faith in the God who never fails, who never changes, who is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, who never changes, who was and is and is to come. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, Oh, Lord, sometimes it's hard for us. It's hard for us at times to cast our cares on you, knowing that you care for us. Sometimes, Lord, we look at the land and we see the giants instead of seeing the land flowing with milk and honey. But I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see your promises, to believe, Lord, that in you they are yes and amen, that you will do it. Thank you, Father, for being a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. Thank you, God, for always being there with us. And so, Lord, as we get this chance to exalt you, to lift up our voices in praise to you, if there are any things, Lord, that are just in our hearts or minds just as an obstacle, take it away. If by our own strength we can't cast it on you, I pray right now that in the name of Jesus, you would please take it away because your promise is that you're working all things together for our good. And so we love you, Lord, and lift up this lost song to you. And we praise you now in Jesus' name, amen.